following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Strap in, movie fans. We're about to take you 30 years into the past to explore the biggest blockbuster hits of the 1990s. I'm Pete. And I'm Michael. And And this this is is Box Box Office Office 30. 30. Welcome to our review of Silence of the Lambs. I'm joined by my good buddy and co-host, Michael. How are you, sir? I don't have any Chianti, but I did bring a glass of wine. (laughs) And I could not find any fava beans on Amazon Fresh, so... Oh, oh, fail. (laughs) I tried, though. I did look. I did look. Fair enough. Good job. (laughs) So how are you doing on this lovely spring evening? Well, um... I'm testing my nerves um, in a way that um, compared to having watched Silence of the Lambs, I feel like was like kind of on par with each other (laughs) because this movie was definitely like it still holds up. It was still freaking me out the other night. But tonight I had to change Zoe's earrings for the first time. I I won't do that to my children. No way. I'm afraid. Yes. Well, you know, we we let her wait for a long time and decide if she finally wanted them and she wanted to go ahead with it. And and to be honest, she took the piercing itself like a champ. Okay. Um, But we waited to the six month or six month, six week point. Yeah, six weeks. And uh, went to kind of see if we could, you know, swap them out at that point. And we were just having a really hard time with it. She was really freaking out, really screaming mm. her head off and everything. And I was like, you know what? Forget it. It might not be healed all the way. Let's just leave it. So we left it. Now this was January 6th. She had her ears pierced. So we're, you know, okay. almost three months later here. So, uh, the other day we're looking at her and she has all this dried blood on the back of her ear. Uh, I'm like, yeah, what yeah. the heck? So turns out because my wife, Angela, I don't know if you know this or not, has never had her ears pierced her whole life. I didn't know that. No. She just decided or didn't decide to ever do it at, at, at a point, you know, so she's never um, been privy to it. So her and I are on an equal, complete piercing noob playing field. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was struggling to get the backings off and everything. So whatever. So but like anyway, she was bleeding the other day. We called the people. They go, oh, she might have a sensitivity to um, the the studs that they put in initially, which is like a little weird because it's like, why would you put something like that in that people might have sensitivity to, but I digress. So they said, you have to go with a, a 14 carat or higher gold, which they mm-hmm. won't be, you know, whatever. So we went out today, get some quasi expensive earrings, just, you know, cute little studs, but you know, gold. So it comes with the, the price. Yes. Just so that way we don't have to deal with any infections or anything like that. So 
I was trying to put those things through her ear before there. And like, I'll tell you one thing, I could not be a serial killer because (laughs) I was like, I got them through finally. And she's like screaming. I get them both through because I was having a hard time. The first one went through pretty good. Second one I was struggling with, really struggling with. And then uh, I like just went out on the back porch because I was like, I need air now. <laughs> so, so, okay. Collector, I, I'm not. <laughs> I, 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 I was kind of trying to figure out where this story was going. And now, now, it, now I, I get it. So, you know, from someone who has had both of my children's ears pierced at the ripe age of under one years old. Yes. Um, I, I can tell you that, you know, the first time you change it is a little traumatic. Grace also got an infection on her one of her ears from the initial like ear piercing that the doctor gave and Charlotte also got one as well and we had to take her first earrings out at 5 weeks and yeah. we quickly just threw in other earrings and one thing that you're going to have to watch is once you have the new earrings in check the backs every single night yeah yeah because, yeah. because they get loose and they kind of fall out here and there we've lost we lost an earring in the pool once. You know, it's, it's been, it's been, it's, it's a weird kind of thing, especially for a parent. Cause I, I've tightened their earrings, but I've never personally like jabbed it in. I, I usually leave that to Dory. I kind of hold yeah. the kid down and do, do the Things thing that I've learned. Um, ears are much thicker than you think they are. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a weird, it's a weird kind of thing. And uh, another thing is that when I'm somebody who has a little bit shaky hands to begin with, but when you, you have think? that combined with crying child, um, it's it's like trying to do like pin the tail on the donkey during like a hurricane. It's like <laughs> I don't I, I don't know. So so for the for the listeners, in case I'm at eleven here today, <laughs> you know why you you are blowing out a little bit. I'll tell you. Yes, I'm like yeah. I see the waveform just going. Hopefully it'll come back down, friends, because right now I'm like, whoo! I feel like I've just had like twenty cups of coffee. <laughs> So I have a little bit of a funny story, totally unrelated to, you know, ear piercings. Thank but, goodness. <laughs> but um, I had a really hard time figuring out how to watch this movie again or rewatch <laughs> it. So I have the DVD somewhere in a CD book. And I have like, as you know, seven CD books of DVDs. Is it and, just seven? <laughs> yeah, please. Seven of that. Plus, I have a, a DVD case or a, a CD sleeve of all CDs. I have one of all like old software, and I'm like, I'm not gonna sit here and go through all these <laughs> DVD cases to find the disc because I have it digitally. Get rid of the, the old software, you hoarder. I mean, like, <laughs> what are you gonna do? Install Windows 95 again? <laughs> I did. Well, that that was one thing I did do because of this. I started throwing out like I'm like. I don't need this office 2005. It's like, <laughs> goodbye. Goodbye. Yeah. Oh, oh, I look, I had my, you know, uh, iTunes install disc for version one. I was like, Oh, I don't need that. Goodbye. Yeah, I've been <laughs> hanging on to my like Adobe CS six, which I had paid like a gazillion dollar for, which yeah. I think is why I was holding on to it. But I'm like, when am I ever going to do anything with this? Like put it on a shelf or something. I don't know. A lot of machines <laughs> don't even support it anymore. Yeah. So anywho, I have the movie in my iTunes library digitally because I converted it at one point. Yeah, because, that seems like the much easier answer. <laughs> so, but here's the, here's the problem. So it's on my computer in my office, right? And 
I could have, you know, using AirPlay through an Apple TV or whatever, streamed it to a television somewhere in my house. I could have watched it in the living room or whatever. But Dory's like, I am not watching this movie. You're going to give me nightmares. I cannot watch this movie. And with the kids being home and so on, I'm like, how am I going to watch this thing? So I'm like, all right, I'll just airdrop it to my iPad. Well, apparently, as much as I love Apple, they haven't yet figured out how to airdrop a movie file <laughs> that it will land in the movie's app on the thing. So I'm like, okay, great. That didn't work. And I was banging my head for about 45 minutes with that. Then I decided, oh, you know what? I'm going to try to sync it to my computer. Well, first problem is the new Apple iPad is a, you know, USB-C cable. And the computer that has the movie on it doesn't have a USB-C. So then of I had course. to file transfer <laughs> it to my other laptop that has the movie, that has USB-C. So then I plugged the, la- the iPad into it and I tried to sync it through iTunes. Well, apparently this movie's not compatible with iTunes on the iPad. (laughs) I was like, what? So then I'm like, okay, I went back to the first computer, launched Plex, which needed like 4 million updates. I'm running all those updates. Just to just throw a little um, wrench in the works here. So Plex, for those that are uninitiated, was a um, personal media server that you could set up that uh, Michael and I got tuned on to. I don't know. What would you say? Eight years ago? Eight years ago, yeah. Um, and, uh, mine still runs every day on my computer, but I have not used Plex in like a good three years. Oh, easily. It's been at least three years. <laughs> just literally you saying that made me really realize like, I got to really uninstall that. <laughs> so, so I do the thing. I run all the updates, right? I install Plex on my iPad and then I launch it and it plays for five seconds. I said, okay, that's weird. So then I go and try to play it again, plays for five seconds. And I'm like, it sees my library. I'm on the same network. What is going on? It says, oh, well, if you'd like to stream your content from your computer to your iPad using Plex, you need to pay $5.99 to be able to authenticate the streaming function on your personal applications. And I'm like, okay, great. Here you go, iTunes. Here's my six bucks. <laughs> and so then I watched it on my iPad. You know, it, I got to jump in here now, you know, and I realized that you might have gotten yourself a little leg up with Plex moving forward. But for six bucks, you probably could have just rented it off Amazon Prime or something. I know. I know. <laughs> but I was so determined to watch my own digital copy <laughs> that I have on my own computer. It has been there for probably a decade, you know, and I'm like, this is just, it's going to work. I'm going to figure out a way to make this work. The struggle is real. (laughs) Yeah. And so I'm watching it without headphones. And then Dory says, you're going to watch this movie on your iPad, but I got to hear it. So then I I had to pair my Bluetooth earbuds to the iPad to watch the thing. I'm surprised she didn't just send you out in the yard with a sleeping bag for the night. Well, it took me like three sittings to finish the whole thing because I kept (laughs) rewinding it to take notes and so on and so forth and it was just whatever. But Ange did sit down to watch it with me, but she did also immediately as it was starting thank me for keeping her up that night. She's like, I will be awake now. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I have to say this movie in a lot of ways still holds up really well. And it also has 
a lot of elements that similarly sort of transcend in parallels to today. And in particular, I'm going to jump way ahead, but I wanted to say this before I forgot. A lot of this movie revolves around Clarice Starling being a new young female FBI agent and everybody kind of giving her none of the respect that she deserves in her role, as well as, you know, sexual passes that people try to push on her in particular, like the warden to the prison. And there's a scene later in the movie where they're at a funeral or they're at like a, a morgue and there's all these like Southern you know, sheriffs and police officers that are kind of just staring at her and giving her the stink eye and disrespecting her in a lot of ways. And she has to showcase that she is strong enough and confident enough to stand up to these, you know, chauvinistic, egotistical, predominantly white men. And I thought it was very interesting to see that play out in a movie that took place 30 years ago. No, it's true. And I'm glad that you brought it up. I was actually um, sort of saying this to Ange today that um, certainly there's plenty of movies that have had um, strong um, female leads um, throughout time, you know, even back in the 90s, 80s, etc. But it was refreshing um, to see that a movie of this time was sort of treating it in a serious manner, that they were sort of showing a realistic depiction of what I feel like a woman in that scenario would be going through. And yet, you know, sort of prevailing over all these kind of just dumb alpha male sort of things. And they do hit you over the head with it. You know, there's definitely a few scenes where she's on an elevator with a bunch of guys that are like five feet taller that she's in a room with a bunch of sheriffs that are all five feet tall, you know? Yeah. And, um, and I'm sure we'll get into it more as we go, but one of the really unique things that this movie did that I had completely forgotten about is they film it in such a way where quite a lot of it is actually sort of from her perspective. First person perspective. Yeah. There's, which there's I, several shots like that, which is really interesting. Yeah. And I, I think it does a lot for the psyche of the film in the horror aspect, mm-hmm. in the psychological aspect, and in frankly, just putting you in her place and in her condition. Right, and to, um, and to make you feel as uncomfortable as the character feels. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the thing about Clarice is, is that it, there's nothing about her that's 100% stand out versus, like, anybody else that would necessarily be in her position. You know, it's not like, you know, like a Sherlock Holmes-type movie or a James Bond sort of thing where the person that you're following has, like, you know, he's the smartest person in the room or he's, like, you know you know, just always ahead of the bad guys by several steps. Like she just feels like a real lived in person that could kind of be anybody is, you know, and I'm not to take away from her cause she's clearly clever enough and, and whatever to, to figure out quite a lot of the, the stuff. And she deals with big time people like Hannibal and everything like really well. But, um, I just you know really like that. Like, like, yeah, she's, you know, in some ways what you're, what, you know, the way I looked at it was, if you, I'm going to just use a, a scenario, for example, or I'm going to parallel this to something else. She's kind of like John McClane in the first Die Hard movie. <laughs> just a person that's just in 
the right place at the wrong time and is thrust into this situation not by their own choice and has to navigate through impossible scenarios just using their wits and and their ability to overcome these weird obstacles and it's another thing that i was thinking about as i was watching this movie this movie has a couple of unique elements to it and i'm going to parallel it to another franchise that i am very passionate about is the unbreakable franchise in particular with glass so i feel like M. Night Shyamalan, in a lot of ways, copied off this movie, in particular with Glass, because you have the genius Mr. Glass, the un, you know, uncertain hero of you know David Dunn, and the Beast, and you kind of have the same sort of element in this movie, where you have Hannibal Lecter as this genius psychopath, Clarice Starling as this unlucky you know almost out of place protagonist and then you have buffalo bill as this beast this monster that they're trying to to capture fair enough yeah that's that's a that's a decent parallel i was wondering how you were going to make the uh connection there and and i'll give it to you <laughs> <laughs> okay. so, so you want to dive in yeah let's dive in i took a lot of notes not as much as we would assume but the one thing that I really liked in particular with this movie in both the bookends of the movie, if you will, the beginning and the end is the way they do the title sequences in both the beginning and the end. The, the you're basically just boom, you're right into the movie and you get, you know, silence of the lambs. You get all their names as you see Clarice by herself running through the woods, training and Quantico. And I thought that was a really cool design aspect of the way they edited the film and then they parallel that at the very end of the movie with Hannibal Lecter walking away and disappearing in the crowd and the entire credits and I watched it all the way to the end of the credits you scroll all the way through and it just stays on this live shot it doesn't cut to black at all it just you follow it until he's gone and you just keep seeing the credits roll and it's just he's just lost in the crowd and I thought that was a really interesting way that they dis- decided to do that. And they bookended this movie with her totally alone in the beginning credits and him disappearing in a huge crowd of people in the end credits. And I thought that was really, really interesting. And I wanted to point that out right off the bat. Yeah, no, they did a, do a really good job with that. And as you say, bookends is like sort of the perfect uh, nomenclature for exactly how it feels. You know, it kind of starts off with her and it kind of ends off with this more sinister note of him out in the world and everything like that, especially with how he leaves off with a call to her and sort of describing like where he's at with things and everything. And then he's, Um, you know, so the one thing that I find really cool with the beginning of the movie is, and I don't know if this was really talked about in anything prior to this movie is how she speaks to Crawford, her, you know, FBI Quantico professor slash, pseudo boss if you will how she wants to get involved into the interviewing of psychopaths and be on the behavioral science division of the fbi and that terminology of be- of behavioral science is a very 
common thing in television you hear now or movies and so on and so forth. There's so many shows and movies, whether it's CSI or uh, Mindhunter on Netflix and so on, that are behavioral science people. But this was one of the first movies that I really think dove deep into that idea of this aspect of the FBI. Yeah, I mean, what's really neat is, as usual, I try to take a little like look behind the curtain and um, find some interesting and fun things about this movie. and. Uh, what's cool is that, and again, I, I haven't read the book, so I can't say how much the book had right about these sort of things or not, but they kind of got some unprecedented, um, access, uh, in so much as like they talked with several different, you know, people, um, in the FBI and actually the training sequence that she does at Quantico. I don't remember if I read that it was literally at Quantico or at least another FBI training camp that they would not usually let civilian people of any kind onto to do this sort of thing. So I think when things like that occur, it usually helps the movie and the actors in such a way that it does bring them a little further into who that character is and what they're doing. And, you know, I read a lot that um, Jodie Foster in particular, um, you know, got to uh, experience quite a lot of that sort of training that she actually would join in in research with some of these FBI groups and learn a little bit about, you know, some of this stuff. So uh, I think they give it a good foundation in the story, but I think they gave it a good foundation in getting like the actors and everything into this mind space of exactly what it is that they're trying to portray here. Well, they even credit at the end of the movie, the FBI giving them significant access and and support in making this film, which I thought yeah. was really, really cool. Now, when she's sitting down and she's talking to Crawford and he's kind of telling her, hey, I'm going to send you to see Hannibal Lecter, which, you know, in this fictitious world is basically like saying, I'm sending you to see Charles Manson. You know, it's basically what it is. And and she's like, he's like, he's a genius. He's a psychopath. Do not tell him anything personal about yourself. And it's such a interesting statement because it's a huge foreshadowing of much of the movie is her having to divulge things about herself for him to trust her enough to give him information, give her information back. Yeah, well, they sort of point out right off the bat that he's a genius and a killer, but he's also like a psychologist psychologist, and that he uses that to effect. You know what I mean? Like that they've sent other people in and it's been, you know, that they either don't get anything out of him or it's like a mess and it's just like a whole, you know, crazy thing. So uh, as a story beat, I thought this was a really interesting choice because you're essentially sending a non-graduated FBI in training rookie into like, the wolves den you know what i yeah. mean like you know there is nothing um about her um experience wise or anything like that that would be prepared for the level of what this guy is and in that respect it's almost a clever move on their part because they're sort of setting her up to fail yeah um but it ends up sort of succeeding in a big bad way you know like they yeah. it's kind of like they sort of recognize that if they send somebody real seasoned in there that he's just going to like chew them up and spit them out and that's going to be the end of it so they're trying something like a little 
different. You know what I mean? And it ends up kind of working out in a spectacular way because I think Hannibal ends up taking a big liking to her for reasons, you know? And it's also one of those things where it's, they're looking at her and this is looking at her in 91 as being a woman in the FBI. They're like, if this guy tortures her mentally and she quits, they look like it. There's no, in the, in, in their portrayal, it's almost like, are they losing anything? If she quits because she got mentally tortured from this guy, is what's the what's the what's the loss here? Like they're 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 almost accepting the loss in case that she couldn't handle dealing with this guy. Yeah, um, you can cut that sure. out if you want. If you no, want no, to. no. I think that makes total sense. I have to cut this out now. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, now we get to this prison, which we find out is in Baltimore, and I guess apparently all of Hannibal Lecter's murders took place in and around the Baltimore, Maryland area, and. We see this prison and this essentially it's like Arkham Asylum, a psychiatric facility for nutcases. And we meet the warden who is this doctor who's a super creep and he is so repugnant and (laughs) and he is probably the least likable character in the entire movie. He's so awful and he's, you know, trying to like solicit her to you know be intimate with him and and he's like flirting with her and he's really gross and he makes Hannibal Lecter look not so bad <laughs> yeah I mean the funny thing about this movie and it's harder to say having seen it previously and again there was things that I forgot about it or um, remembered differently having rewatched it now after all this time But I feel like one thing about this movie is that it's not necessarily the most predictable film out there, that there's a lot of little twists and turns and red herrings and different things like that. But the one thing that is 100% predictable as soon as you meet him is that character is in for it. (laughs) Like, he's just so, I love that you use the word repugnant, great word, so repugnant, so creepy. Um, And you're just like, this guy's got to go and you know that something's going to happen to him at some point down the line. Now, unfortunately it happens off off camera, you know, (laughs) but it's, it's still a perfect little end to everything. Spoiler alert. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, they, they keep sharing that this guy is just far too sophisticated. He's too intelligent. You know, he's going to try to manipulate you and, it's very interesting because they just keep hammering this beat home. And you have, in a way, sort of a picture of who Hannibal Lecter is before you even meet him. And I thought that was really interesting because it makes the job of the actor, which is obviously Anthony Hopkins, even harder to try to carry out that level of I'm a genius, but I'm also a psychopath and I, I torture people both mentally and physically, but because they they lay it on so thick that he's so smart that it makes it even harder as an actor to try to portray that. And he does it in, in well, a Well, I know, way. and I'm so glad that you brought that up because it, it really is true. And I think, you know, I think you had talked to me about this with Manhunter that in a way, I think you said you liked it, but I thought you said also it kind of has like sort of a cheesy feeling to it. Maybe at times. I, yeah, at times, you know, sort of 
it takes Rain some. Dragon, on the other hand, is really not as nearly on par with either of those two movies. But that's yeah, whatever. You know, I I feel like it takes some big big acting chops to fill these two main roles. And oh by the God. way, I should really stick a pin in our in our whole thing right here. Um, we had a huge goof <laughs> last episode what that I feel doing? like that I feel like I need to drag up, and maybe I'll play a little bit of that uh, that audio here. At this time, Jodie Foster and uh, Anthony Hopkins were relative unknowns, so they weren't making the big bucks of Julia Roberts in this movie. Now, is that is that true? Like, do you feel Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins weren't kind of in the main limelight here yet? This was when Anthony I mean, Hopkins- Jodie Foster, I can see. Like, do you think Anthony Hopkins was not known at this point? I don't know. This was one of his first movies. Really? Yeah. He was, he was a theater actor in London for a long, long, long time. So he got a little bit of a later start then. Yeah. Interesting. This was, I did this, was, this was one of his first big movies. <laughs> I would say it's one of, yeah, if not the first, it's one of the first. Yes. Cool. But essentially what we were talking about was um, we got into to discussing that um, both of these actors were relatively unknown starting out their career actors, that they didn't really have many roles um, up to this point. Um, and uh, I started questioning it after the fact. And I, I finally said to myself, this has got to be wrong because I started having rec- recollections of things that both of them were in beforehand. So I, I have here our, our rundown of how badly we screwed up. So um, Jodie Foster was in 24 films and 31 TV shows or made for TV movies before Silence of the Lambs. No way. <laughs> no way. She was nominated for Best Supporting Actress and Taxi Driver and oh, one right. best actress for 1988's Accused before winning for Silence again. No okay. way. I so, forgot all about that. Yes, oh, yes, so, right. She is in Taxi Driver. She's, she's a, a girl. prolific child actor. Like, <laughs> she's, like, she was in Freaky Friday. She was in, like, a ton of movies. And, like, I was like, oh, my God, how did I forget all this? Now, hers is worse. Anthony's is a little bit lighter, but he was in 22 featured films and 42 TV shows are made for TV movies before silence of the lambs. A lot of them British made. So we might not have known quite as many of them, but still quite a few under his belt. And he won and was nominated for a number of golden globes, Emmys and BAFTAs before silence of the lambs. So <laughs> whoops. Yeah, we, uh, we blew that one. <laughs> you the car crash sound on that one. Well, whoops. well that's <laughs> the thing. Now the, the good news was I caught that, um, before that episode went out. So there's like a, a um, bum, 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 <laughs> when we, when we get through that in the previous episode, but I figured I'd at least um, air out our dirty laundry here. For oh, anybody who, who did hear and was going, what are they talking about? That is embarrassing. Now, I... folks, Mike and I um, are movie fans before movie experts. So I'm just going to throw that disclaimer out there for the rest of, <laughs> of time, because <laughs> there's definitely some things we've screwed up before, but I thought that was one of the biggest um, goofs that we've maybe uh, made to this point in time. <laughs> I, I have the awkward chills now for my screw ups there. Oops. Yes. <laughs> but while we're on this little uh, tangent, I have some more fun facts. So uh, we had talked about last time that um, Anthony Hopkins 
um, had a fairly smallish role overall, even though he feels like the biggest thing happening in that movie. Um, I did not time this myself, but according to the interwebs, he's only on screen for 16 minutes, which is about 14% of the total film. Wow. So that's significant, you know, and especially the fact that he does uh, both her and him go on to win best actress and actor for um, the film. That's significant. That's, you know, not the shortest ever amount of screen time that anybody has pulled an Oscar out of. But I mean, that's got to be up there for it. I mean, that and Francis McDormand in, in Fargo got to be probably the very close. Yeah, there's a time. woman I'm forgetting her name who is in network who was on screen for like a minute. And I think she won the best actress or best supporting or something like what? that. That's crazy. Um, and there's some others like that. Um, speaking of awards, this film, and I, I don't know to date quite the total number. This is my homework. Didn't quite reach the tail end of where it could have. But um, at least at this time, it was one of a, just a very few handful of films to ever win the big five at the Academy Awards. So it took away best actor, actress, director, screenplay, and best picture. Wow. So uh, it's a little bit of a sleeper when it comes out, you know, even though it made the top of our list this month, but it's, it's kind of a sleeper as far as the response initially, but it, it picked up a lot of critical steam to obviously go on and, and do some big, you know, stuff with the awards. Is it screenplay or adapted screenplay? Um, I guess it would be adapted given that book. it was from a novel. Now, the other interesting thing about this movie is the director of this film if you go through his list, which is the director is Jonathan Demi, who sadly passed away in 2017 due to cancer. I did a little bit of research as well. Excellent. I like to hear that. And, <laughs> you know, other than this movie, he's got like, he's got some heavy hitters. Two years later, he has Philadelphia. Yeah. Which is yeah. Unbelievable. Um, He's got the remake of the Manchurian Candidate, which I know you don't let like. Me, let me ask you something. Did you do some of this research from the last episode when we talked about this? <laughs> yes, I did. Yes. yes, I did. Yes, but I didn't catch the cancer thing. But but this stuff, the other the other projects we did speak about. <laughs> but what I, what I the reason why I bring that up is because this movie is just so different. From so many of the other films that he did. And yeah, no, for sure. Very and what I would say is that for him, for Jody, and to an extent, I would say for Anthony, like in my mind personally, like this is probably like their biggest and best. Like, you know what I mean? Oh, like, I like so. just when like you think of those actors, this is the movie that immediately comes to mind. And and with Jonathan Demme, I think too, this is probably like his. I mean, Philadelphia is a huge movie, you know, some of those ones are big deal this movies, but I, I think this one has like that kind of instant recall and staying power with a lot of people, you know? Yeah, I would say this is definitely for Jodie Foster, probably her biggest film. I would also say that this is Anthony Hopkins' most well-known film that he's been in. I mean, I could rifle off 10 Anthony Hopkins <laughs> movies, but like this particular one, it, because he's so different in this role than he is in so many other roles and and he's played creepy characters after this but nothing like this and one of the things i wanted to point out in in particular about anthony hopkins in this movie is 
he doesn't have an English accent. He's got this kind of muddled Maryland, almost slightly British, but not really Americanized, creepy accent. And he often speaks in rhyme, which is very, very interesting. Like he, he kind of plays on rhyming. And the one thing that I thought about after watching this movie was he doesn't have this same, you know, accent or dialect or even just like cadence in Hannibal that he had in this movie or in Red Dragon for that matter. Yeah, I mean, we could probably spend the whole podcast just talking about his performance in this film. Um, It's really unique. It's really one of a kind. I think it, despite that lack of film time, instantly sealed this character as like a completely recognizable character for all time. Um, especially like among like some of the top creepy movie characters and things like that. He just has such presence anytime that he's on screen. And, you know, there's obviously some scenes that we'll get to in, in moving ahead here that, um, are shocking in their own regard for the content of them. But just the scenes of him in his cell and the quiet power that he brings to it is just is really something it's, yeah. it's really a defining role. And it's really, um, if you've never seen this movie, you should make a point too, because it's just really, really quite it, amazing. And speaking of the, the cell in particular, the, the set design for that corridor is so beautiful in its, in its terror and how it makes you so uncomfortable just walking down the hallway and, well, it and, feels like a dungeon. And again, like, you know, not all psychiatric places are certainly um, Malibu yeah. <laughs> sort of, you know, thing. But like, yeah, it feels like they dug this out of like a castle or something, you yeah. know. And what's unique about this, and they do this a lot in the film, is, and you'll appreciate this thought that I had, the the cinematography in particular and the framing of shots is very interesting. In particular, I noticed that the most, the first time she goes to meet him, a lot of stuff is set center frame. She's in center frame. The chair that she walks to is dead center frame. He's sitting center frame. And like it, it gives you all this space around you that makes you uncomfortable because you're like, what is waiting in the wings? Like, what is going on here? And that compounded with the lighting is very unique. When she first enters that corridor, she's standing there with a warden and just literally in beet red light. And and that's all you see is just the redness of this light of their faces and, you know, their clothes. But there's still like a depth to the shot, even though this like stark red lighting or later in the film, there is, you know, all of the green lighting from what you find out is like a night vision goggles, but there's still depth to it. And it's really, really intelligent lighting and cinematography that blew my mind. No, for sure. And I would say one other point on the cinematography front, which is that they spend a lot of time. Again, we mentioned it in that sort of first person view where the camera is staring dead eyed into the actor and the actor is staring straight back into the camera. And it's, you know, it's off putting for the audience. It kind of makes you feel like you're, there and it's got this psychological feel to it 
But they also use a lot of very shallow depth of field, where in the area of focus is just a narrow little window. Oh, and yeah. what's funny is I did notice at times um, that there's mistakes where the character is slightly back focused, where like there's times where instead of Jody's eyes being in focus, you see her ears are more sharp and things like that. Yeah. And I found like an article that was talking about that, like it was very, very hard for her that she could almost not move in some scenes because mm. if she moved even the slightest bit, she'd go out of focus and things. Yeah. So they're doing a lot with that cinematography to really bring the psychological feel out to you, to the audience more so than I've seen done in quite a lot of other films. Like I know this could be classified as a horror movie or, you know, but it's, it's more than that. I don't think it's necessarily a horror film, as more of it's like a character study on psychology and like, you know, just like a, a psychological thriller that the movie is designed to make you feel uncomfortable like the character you're following that you're rooting for. And it's there's horror aspects to the movie, but I don't think it's really a horror film. And no, more 100 percent. That's what I was going to say is there's horrific imagery. But this was really evoking the old Hitchcock thing for me, which is the buildup to what you might see. Yeah. That sort of um, idea that, you know, a lot of slasher movies or things where you go wrong is you're just seeing blood and gore, blood and gore, blood and gore. And it gets to feel almost silly or fake or not real. Yeah. You know, uh, the, the Hitchcock horror sort of thing is what is it that you're not seeing? that is actually possibly going to freak you out more. And, you know, there's yeah. things about this movie that I had misremembered, um, you know, and again, the stuff that we'll probably get to down the line, but I thought that there were some things that I had remembered seeing that were much more gory and horrific. And really, frankly, you just see bits and pieces of things here and there. Yeah. They don't really full on, you know, have these just crazy, crazy scenes where you're seeing all blood and guts and this and that, you know? So, it's more what they leave you to imagine um, that can be even almost freakier, I think, at times. So, no, I 100% agree. Now, here's something that I wanted to mention and I thought was very interesting. And this could be absolute sheer coincidence, but I thought it was important to mention. Both uh, Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins have almost the same color eyes. Yeah, I mean, one thing that you can't miss because of the nature of how they film this and so many serious close-ups on faces is, I mean, she definitely has like very blue, blue eyes in this. Did he have blue as well? It seemed like it, at least. I'm um, trying to remember. Yeah, I mean, I'll take your word at it. But yeah, no, definitely a, a lot of eye work in this, very piercing. And again, I think that goes right into the heart and soul of just like, you know, dragging you right into them you know what i mean like yeah. bringing you right into their world with them so one of the cool things that hannibal lecter does in this movie is he plays a lot with riddles or puzzles or anagrams and he tries to give you information or give clarice information without like just outright saying this is what you need to go and he does that with a reference to a character that we d we never actually meet the character that he's making up is Miss Moffat. And he says, hey, there's an old patient of mine named Miss Moffat. And he sends her kind of like on a mission to find Miss Moffat. 
And she goes to this like self storage unit where he's got like a storage garage and it breaks out that it's, it's an anagram, but it's basically like she pieces the puzzles together and says that this is, you know, things you missed about me. Like when they first caught him, they didn't find all of the evidence about him. And she goes into this storage garage, which the door is broken and you see this like creepy landlord that, you know, (laughs) runs the garage. And she's trying to figure out how to get into it. And because she's so resourceful, she realizes she can go to the back of her car and gets her tire jack for her car and jacks up the garage just enough to try to squeeze through and gets injured going in. And then she's snooping around and she finds a hearse and she goes into the hearse and she finds a head in a jar. And it's horrific and scary but she doesn't react to it like she was more curious about it than terrified did you catch that yeah i mean she sort i mean you know partially you would argue that part of her training is that she's going to be dealing with things like this and certainly when she's getting in with this group so i i think she kind of goes from a horrific reaction right into like an intrigued reaction and realizes that she's still um sort of on the trail here and and picking things up and you know some pieces are coming together and i think there's a payoff for having figured out you know partially what the clue is and obviously this also sets up some more story elements including you know we see quite a lot of um sewing mannequins throughout the rest of this film and it starts really bringing in like the whole sewing aspect of things um uh, fun fact, um, that little um, head in the jar is a mold of the producer of the movie, Edward Saxon. <laughs> That's even, <laughs> even creepier. Yes. But I, I remember what it was. So the storage unit is under a woman's name named Esther Moffat. And then when she decodes it, it says, the rest of me. And That's what it was. That's how she figures it out. So she goes back to him afterwards almost immediately and he can smell that she's bleeding from a cut on her leg and i thought that was really really interesting like he could he he could smell the blood well he, you know he has an earlier scene where he can like smell her perfume or something like yeah. that i don't remember if that one was a smell thing again or if he just happened to see because i think she like raked her leg so it could be that he, he even saw that but again, it's just like, you know, and this is what you were starting to say before. Everything with him is cat and mouse. It's yeah. it's a lot of like, how can he toy with you? And he gives you little bits and pieces. And like, you know, what we come to find out as the movie goes on is that he knows who this killer is. Like he oh, yeah. knows him by name. He knows who he is. Um, but he's not just going to give it to you. He wants to kind of like, you know, tease it out and sort of send you on these little scavenger hunts and things like that. So um Every little thing like that that he can, you know, toy around with, um, you know, it's even like uh, we skipped over it and, and possibly because of the um, relatively I'm not going to call this a family podcast, but the relatively cleanish rating of it that, you know, on her first time meeting him, she has an unfortunate run in with his neighbor, the next oh. cell over. And I won't say any more than that, but his reaction to that is to whisper to the guy until the guy essentially kills himself. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like, this is a man that is definitely the smartest guy in the room and 
likes to play with people's minds. You know what I mean? So it's it's pretty crazy how how he starts taking her under his wing and leading her through the steps of this. But it's sort of funny that you bring that up because it shows in a way, in his sick, twisted way, that he cares about her and didn't like the way this other inmate treated her. And therefore, he needed to seek revenge or punishment onto this guy and essentially manipulate him to killing himself, which is really, really interesting. Now, have you ever heard of somebody dying having swallowed their own tongue? I'm pretty sure that's not a thing. <laughs> I don't know. Unless, <laughs> who knows? I don't know. It's uh, who knows? Not, I, I ne- it was new to me. Yes. <laughs> so anyway, as you mentioned, he kind of alludes to the fact that he knows who this guy is. And he talks about the transformation that a killer goes through. And killers have their first kills and so on and so forth. And apparently this head in the jar, the way I interpreted it, was Buffalo Bill's first kill. Not Hannibal Lecter's first kill. Yeah, no, that's I'm pretty sure what they said, and I could be wrong, is that the head in the jar was one of Hannibal's patients and that he was keyed in for the very first time to Buffalo Bill because this is somebody that he had killed. Yeah. Um, Now, I know the book does more to explain a little bit more of Buffalo Bill's backstory in so much as that. I forget if he either kills his parents or his parents die, but then he goes to live with his grandparents and he kills his grandparents two years later. So there's definitely more to that character killing. Like, it's not like the first woman that he kills in this is the first person that he kills. Um, He's definitely killed others, but I think that they're just unknown murders as far as the persona of Buffalo Bill goes. Um, It's not amongst the women that he's abducting, but um, this is how Hannibal knows him is that that was a patient of Hannibal's that this guy happened upon and killed. Yeah. And somehow he ended up with this guy's head in the jar. I don't remember fluidly how that all came to be, but I I think that's the, the backstory to that. Yeah. And essentially they've been saying that Buffalo Bill has been killing for a long time. And the FBI is only cued in that he's, you know, killed a couple of like three or four women at this point, but he may have been doing this for 20 years at this point, you know, who knows? Yeah. I think it's just the difference between a more specific profile they're creating on a series of recent incidents versus random missing people that they have no way of linking him to is probably the case. Yeah. So the first, one of the first times we really see Buffalo Bill, we kind of like get a feel for him is when he kidnaps the, uh, the Senator's daughter. And he does this interesting thing where he's got this big van and he's wearing like a, like a cast over one of his arms. He's trying to lift a chair into the back of the van. And essentially the girl is just being an innocent bystander walking by sees him and says, Oh, he must need help and goes over to help him. And she gets inside the truck and he kind of shoves her all the way in with this thing and then knocks her unconscious. An interesting fact about this particular scene is essentially an homage to Ted Bundy because Ted Bundy did things like this to some of the women. To the T. He He would wear a cast. He would trick. Now, one of the differences is that he wouldn't target a specific woman, that he would instead go where there was like a larger group and Mm -hmm. and try and essentially 
fish one away in this in this means. But yes, this is this is Ted Bundy to a T. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if you caught it. Um, otherwise, um, there's a couple of other um, mass murderers that this character is is based on. Oh yeah. Um, so there's Ted Bundy in that in that respect. Um, another is um, Gary Heidman, who was a Philadelphia area serial killer, and this is where the pit in the basement comes from. Mm-hmm. He would capture people and and like put them in a pit in their basement and sort of like essentially torture them there. Yeah. Um, but the most famous that he's based off of is Ed Gain. Oh yeah. Um, and Ed Gain, for those who who might not know, is also the sort of um, the foil, the inspiration for Norman Bates in Psycho. Mm-hmm as well as Leatherface in Chainsaw Massacre. And he's definitely more known as a serial killer um, who would be doing kind of the mutilation and sewing skin and things like that. That is a, the mainstay of who Buffalo Bill is. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just kind of interesting fun fact to throw in there. I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> Unless you like some really dark horror, don't see the Ed Gain movie. It <laughs> is horrifying like oh my god it's horrifying it's rough I, I i have it i couldn't get through it it's so and and i like that kind of stuff that one was tough like I've i seen, don't i my wife is more the um crime thriller person so actually she helped me thank you with the uh <laughs> the facts for some of that uh serial killer stuff i am not somebody who 100 typically follows that uh <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as we heard from the earring thing before <laughs> This, and I'm not a horror fan, but I do like this kind of genre of, you know, the serial killer and all that kind of stuff. That stuff I didn't find interesting, but that movie was rough. Yeah. Uh, another fun fact is, so, you know, a lot of times with serial killers, they have a type or a target that they look for. And Buffalo Bill is looking for women of a size 14 in clothes. And he asks the girl that he kidnaps if she is a size 14. She doesn't really know what he's talking about. Then once he knocks her unconscious, he looks at her dress and sees that it's a size 14. And he's almost giddy with excitement over the fact that he figured out her size was that. And that particular element plays into effect later on in the movie as we find out why he's looking for those kind of things. And basically... um, one of the biggest questions that I had about this movie is why is this recruit of Clarice Starling being the one that's now she's kind of connected with Hannibal Lecter, but now she's essentially thrust into the investigation of trying to find Buffalo Bill. And as you pointed out earlier, she hasn't even graduated from the Academy yet. And she is on the hunt for this killer. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm no expert. And if there's anybody out there that knows somebody with the FBI or whatever, feel free to let us know. Um, I would assume that even recruits, particularly as close to graduation as it turns out that she is, do levels of field work. It's not all just theoretical training. I'm sure that's the case. But somebody in her situation being completely on their own, you know, like that she wouldn't have a team with her or at least a partner or things like that. I don't know how realistic some of that is, and I can't quite tell how much of it is her being sent to investigate it versus her just continuing to kind of investigate on her own chops, as it were. Um, 
So it, it, it seems like a little bit of an unlikely thing to me that in this high profile, especially once, you know, like, I mean, it, we basically get a scene a few scenes later where she finds out, even though she's on this case via Hannibal Lecter, she finds out that the newest victim um, is this senator's daughter via a news conference that she happens to see while she's training with her her friend. Right. Um, and her friend is kind of a random character, too, because she sort of pops up more relevant towards the end. But I felt like she was a toss away character more early in the movie. Yeah. So I I pointed that out in my notes and I said her, her name is like Ardelia. And I feel like because I, too, have never read the book for this movie. I want to go back now and read this book because I feel like that character may have played a more significant role in the book because essentially as the movie goes on, she helps Clarice kind of like put the puzzle pieces together. And I wonder if in the book, she plays a much more prolific role in helping the investigation and so on and so forth. But because of trying to tell this story of one, you know, young woman's journey to find this killer, they just thought that we can't use both these characters essentially in the story. Yeah, that could be. I could. It's not going to help anybody on this show, but I could ask Ange after the fact. She did read the book, and she said it's an excellent book. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, as far as the film goes, I, we got to the end of the movie, and she was chatting with her, and I kind of turned to Ange. I'm like, "Who is she?" And she's like, "Oh, she's her friend from earlier." I remember, and I was like, "Kind of like you know, like I just remember that one scene where they're both kind of like in like sweats, like watching the news, and I like kind of didn't take her seriously because of it, I guess." Yeah. So. Now we get this scene where I mentioned it a little bit earlier. So they go to like a morgue because one of the bodies is turned up. And this is what I thought was very interesting. And this is a very early 90s kind of a thing. So they're in. Let's call it the morgue, essentially. And there's a guy there who's playing the piano, but he's also like the, the mortician, if you will. And he's a character that always plays kind of a creepy role. I forget what his name is in real life. But he's always one of these guys that pops up in just weird roles. And um, they do this thing, and I was trying to understand it. I guess they put, like, Vicks Vapor Rub under their noses. <laughs> Specifically Vicks Vapor Rub, the little product placement where they hold the jar up or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. What's funny about that, and I'm glad you mentioned it, is that when we were doing the preview review, watching the trailer back, I'm like, oh, her nose looks like it's runny. And this is why. Uh, yeah. Whatever they put, so I don't know if it's a smelling salt, something they put under their nose to essentially mask the odor of the deceased, um, is extremely shiny. <laughs> yeah. And a as you mentioned, the... I would like to think it's Vicks VapoRub, that she had some, like, sore muscles under her nose there and <laughs> was was easing them out with some good old Vicks. <laughs> Icy hot. Yeah. So... You mentioned earlier about the idea of the illusion of the violence or illusion of the horror without like hitting you over the head with the horror. So this is the first time we really see like a full out dead body and they don't like hit you over the head with the grossness of it. They they describe it more and then they just show like close ups on like her, you know, hands being kind of torn up and everything and they said she was clawing out of something or like there's some laceration but they don't show like the full extent of like how much this body was mutilated and you just kind of see a little bit 
of it here and there. Which one hundred percent. No, this is one hundred percent what I had in my head before. I mean, there's a few other scenes too, but this is one hundred percent what I was thinking about when I'm saying that, where it's hinting at things. The guy slowly unzipping the body bag, but it doesn't immediately show you the corpse and like like little close ups on like the mouth or the hands or like just like little things like that until they finally at the very end, like show you kind of a pulled out scene quick. You know what I mean? But it's this implication. It's it's what your mind is imagining to be horrific beyond what they're showing you, which is makes it worse. It's, yeah. it's it's like, you know, they could go and bash you over the head to be like, look at this ripped up, mutilated corpse and it's been floating in the water and all this sort of thing. But they don't go that route. They're just like giving you little hints, little close ups here and there that is allowing you to build a bigger and worse picture in your head. And that's what's so darn effective about this. And you know what's interesting about this particular scene is and they play around with this a lot in the movie. The movie is very quiet, right? And in this scene, they're having a conversation. They're, they're, they're having Clarice kind of describe the body and what she finds. But the only other sound you hear in the room is the flash of the, the, the Polaroid camera just taking the pictures. And just it's like, phew, phew. And it's this really cool sound that they used. And they take a picture of the mouth and, and she hands it. And they said there's something inside of her mouth. And they look inside and there's a bug cocoon and you don't know what kind of bug this is at first but then she puts it in a jar and puts it in some i guess it was some sort of like solution maldehyde or something yeah, like that. yeah. To sort of preserve it fun and fact that little cocoon is made out of candy in case the actor accidentally swallowed it really <laughs> really <laughs> that's interesting i didn't know that that's kind yeah. of weird so so yeah so she's looking at this thing and she brings it to I don't know. It, I guess it was a library. This was one of the things that I had a small problem with. They don't establish who these guys are that she goes to see. They're at a Smithsonian. Um, uh, they do show that um, at, at some point. Uh, they're they're like a pair of entomologists, basically. Okay. I, it, was, um, it happened so quick, I missed it. It does, like, it does go quick. But yeah, she's at, she's at like a Smithsonian um, when she meets with them, I think. And they do this cool thing with like a like an exacto knife and they kind of peel back the cocoon and you reveal this head of this moth. And we talked about the moth a little bit in the, the uh, recall, but they tell you what kind of moth it is. And it's called a death's head moth. Which by the way, I did pull that like out of nowhere, out of thin air in the recall. And I can't believe that I remembered that. That was pretty good to say that. Like, if you look at the poster, it's got like a skull on it, but like that, I didn't go like, Oh, a skull moth. I don't know where I yanked that from. Cause it's not like I'm any kind of (laughs) moth expert or something, but that, that for some reason um, did pop back up. Uh, I should take this moment to point out that um, Eric Johnson illustrator pointed out on uh, our Twitter feed um, and I, I it, it made perfect sense then when he did mention it that the image that you so um, correctly pointed out is um, naked women is actually a Salvador Dali um, photograph um, that they pulled and stuck on the back of that moth. Um, so just kind of like a cool. Um, really? Yeah, you can look it up um, that it's not actually the it's it's representative of the women in this film, but it's actually an old Salvador Dali um, I believe it's a photograph, maybe painting, but I think it's a photograph um, uh, with him in the normal photograph. He's off to the side in it. Um, and, and 
Eric pointed that out, and I'm like, oh god, you're exactly right. That's 100 percent what that is. So kind of a leave it thing. to Eric to know those kind of facts. Yes. <laughs> but I I wonder if that plays into there's sort of a little bit of an element of Hannibal Lecter we haven't talked about that he's sort of an artist, right? Yes. He he's like a almost like a, a charcoal artist, and he draws like he talks about the Duomo and in, in in Florence, which I know we've both been to. And he talks about various things that he likes to draw and and different artists that he references throughout the movie. I don't know if he references Dolly in the movie, but that does sort of play into the element of the Hannibal Lecter character that he's obsessed with art. And even at one point, you see for a moment that he drew a picture of Clarice. Yes. When he's in his, his cell later, which I thought was really interesting. So anyway... Getting back on track. Yeah, sorry. I know I keep derailing us with our fun facts here this week. I feel like I have to bring some lightness into it. Otherwise, this is just a dark podcast. (laughs) It's dark. (laughs) It's dark. But so she goes back and sees Hannibal Lecter and tells him about the moth. And he forces her to describe the moth. And he tells her that the moth itself symbolizes change and the transformation of Buffalo Bill into becoming whatever he's going to become next. And I wanted to bring this up because this is something that you never saw Manhunter or Red Dragon or any of those movies. You wouldn't get this. But in those movies or in the the Red Dragon book, as well as the Manhunter movie and so on, change is a big focus on the killer in that movie where he, you know, morphs into something else. And there's a, in Manhunter and in Red Dragon, the villain, the guy that they're trying to hunt down has this giant tattoo of a dragon on his back. And whenever he becomes this beast that hunts and kills, he says that he's becoming this red dragon. And that's why this change element plays into this movie it's one of those things that you don't need to see those movies to know this fact or understand what he's talking about, but it's, it's unique because they tie it into other killers that this, these books have been about. Yeah. And you know, another thing that I would bring up because I feel like it's also relevant to um, society and everything right now is that um, kind of another feature or side to Buffalo Bill is this idea that he's, trying to create this woman's suit. And what's interesting is if you start looking into a little bit of the background of this movie, you know, it's been accused um, of not featuring trans people in a positive light. Right. Um, And what's interesting is that there's a lot of arguments back and forth about if Buffalo Bill is in fact a trans person and really a lot of the um, filmmakers and and, um, some of the actors, and I I think maybe even in the book or the author has sort of made the case that it's really not the case that he's not really truly a trans, you know, person that um, he's more so um, just trying to be the opposite of what he is, that he kind of has like a lot of self hate Mm -hmm. and he sees that this, like, like, you know, essentially inhabiting like a woman's skin makes him different than who he is. So it's like right. another 
you know, kind of look at this idea of transformation and things like that, um, you know, and they kind of talk a little bit lightly about it in the movie. They sort of say, oh, is he a transvestite or something like that? And, you know, I think even we might add was a term back then before the term transgender or or trans person. Right. Yeah. And I feel like even Hannibal kind of sort of says like, no, it's not really what he is or what he's about. does say that yeah you know so it's i i I, you know it's another way to sort of appreciate it with some of the things in modern time that we're trying to define and and, you know um you know depict in a proper way and i i think it's another interesting um view that this movie gives into the psyche of this person and that it doesn't necessarily follow what a trans woman would be and is as a person, you know? So um, I, I don't know. I just thought that was like another interesting viewpoint. And I'm, I'm kind of curious where, where people fall on, on that. I, I don't know personally that he's, he's going that direction. It, it sort of just seems more like this thrill idea that he's killing these women and, and, and wearing their skin versus actually becoming um, or, or just being at, at heart truly a woman, you know? So it's kind I, of interesting. I, I do think that he does have some elements of, like, identity displacement. Like, he doesn't necessarily know what he identifies as, but I also think that he doesn't necessarily know mentally what he is. Yeah. You know? I'm not really sure. It's It's one of those things where they don't dive too deep into the psyche of Buffalo Bill, where I'm sure they do much further in the book that would kind of lay that out better. They just kind of more portray him as a monster. Yeah. And you don't get a full gauge on where he comes from other than just little bits and pieces that Hannibal Lecter kind of tells you throughout the story, which is very interesting. And it's, it's kind of sparked my interest to want to go back and read all of the books <laughs> of, of this series to, to get a feel for it. Uh, there's a part of me that thinks about doing that. Cause you know, I'm a big reader, but the other half of it is I usually read to relax myself before bedtime. <laughs> and I don't think this is a recipe for success. So I might be uh, deferring these books. <laughs> fair point. Fair point. So after this or later on, we get to a point where Clarice comes back to Hannibal Lecter and essentially proposes a deal for him and says, hey, listen, the senator's daughter is missing. She has offered us a deal. You get, you know, the Shangri-La of prisons. You'll get, you know, a window. You'll get a week's vacation every year, essentially on Plum Island, which is like a nuclear island. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for, for those that may be uninitiated in the, the Long Island thing, um, Plum Island is one of these great uh, mysteries of the island. If you try to drive your boat up to it, people will come down in a Humvee with guns and point them at you and tell you to go away. <laughs> you know, it is it is supposedly an animal disease research testing island. Um, but there's a lot of speculation, especially amongst us Long Islanders, about what's really going on there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, like actually... Um, between that and, you know, like the installation in Montauk, um, there was a lot of, um, talk that that's where even, um, Stranger Things was birthed out of that. There was like sort of this like 
other testing stuff going on in these places because they're so, so clamped down. But yeah, that's a whole story for another day when we got Steven Sapellis on the show. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He'll, he'll dive deep into that. I'm sure. But I have driven my boat personally past Plum Island and it is creepy. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's kind of funny because you think that he's buying this deal. Like, he, you think she's got him and he then reveals more information to her. Yeah. That- well, one thing we've glossed over is they have a very, and he keeps saying it, quid pro quo sort of relationship that yeah. like if she wants some info for him, she has to tell some info about her past and her life. And it starts unfolding this. It's, it's actually we're doing a disservice by not mentioning this, that she starts unfolding her life to him. Yeah. And it builds to a fever pitch, which we'll get to. Um, but even with this, like he sort of says to her, like, I don't want to be here anymore. I've been down here for like 11 years or something. And all I stare at is these walls and they torture me with this preacher show on TV. And like, he's like, I just want to be somewhere where I can see like a tree or some birds and things. And so she comes back thinking this is a weakness. So I'll, I'll, I'll let you go from there. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. So she proposes this deal and says, okay, we're going to give you sunlight will give you a vacation once a week once a year and the senator has signed off on this whole thing and she hands him the deal and she also hands him the case file on buffalo bill for him to look over and she then gets the case file or like later on you know we find out that the warden is listening in on their conversations and finds out the deal is baloney. But then he calls the senator and cuts a separate deal and gets. He creates like the actual deal, basically Yeah, that that Clarice was essentially bluffing. Yeah. And really it's not even necessary. This is one part that's a big question mark for me is that if this was Clarice's idea, because there's a part where her boss sort of alludes to the fact that like told her to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Like he, he said he was trying to, you know, pull, like a, a rabbit out of a hat, essentially. Well, they're on a ticking clock now because basically Buffalo Bill abducts these girls three days go by and then essentially they're dead. that's it. So yeah. like they're on a little bit of a ticking clock. So they, because it's this important Senator, they're trying to like really just push and they don't have time anymore for her to try and slowly work with him. But here's the weird thing about that ticking clock of three days. So essentially, and I'm getting way off track, but it's okay. So, we find out that there's this ticking clock that he kills them after three days. He starves them essentially for three days. And then he wants to get their skin loose enough that he can cut it off and make it into this skin suit. Right. And like lotion, you know, the lotion or the hose sort of deal. Yeah. But I was sitting there like, would it only take three days of starvation to, to do that or would it take weeks? Yeah. Again, I don't know if this is something that's changed from the book or anything like that. It does seem if, if those are all the intentions of what he's going to do, it does seem like a relatively short time period, but I don't don't know. know. (laughs) I, I digress. But anyway, so we get a new deal from the warden and they transfer Hannibal Lecter to another facility and they bring him and we're in this airport hangar, right? And he's in that, you know, straight jacket. He's all kind of jammed up and so on and so forth. But we find moments before that 
that the warden shows this new deal and puts down his pen. Yeah, well, he's being the jerk he's been all movie, and he's taunting Hannibal Lecter to his face that, like, the whole thing with Clarice was a fake and yeah. and blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, this, this guy's just really setting himself up to fail. <laughs> yeah, and we keep getting Hannibal looking at this pen. And, you know, we don't see a payoff yet, but we see we find Hannibal next in this straitjacket, essentially strapped to a hand truck, and that, you know, that signature mask that he's got on and the, yes. the, the face covering, which I forgot how creepy it is. It's still so creepy. And for him to be able to act and talk through that is a tour de force of amazing acting to be able to pull that off. What's cool is if you look around for it, you can find a um, costuming series of tests that they did with him in a number of different masks before settling on that one as the final one. An interesting fact about that, that was designed by a guy who designs hockey masks and for like goalies and players. So really, if you look at it, it's got a little bit of that element to it, but yeah, uh, yeah, definitely a very iconic. So the scene you know, we, we we meet the senator and she kind of asks a couple questions for him and he's really creepy. And he's got this, you know, that like I said, that that weird cadence to his voice. He speaks a little bit in rib, riddles and rhymes and he says really horrible things to her about, you know, being a mother. And, you know, it's it's very, very uncomfortable, but it's still amazing because you see how horrified she is to even be in his presence. And yet he is manipulating everybody in the scene and torturing them. And he gives a name of a character that we find out is Lewis friend. And Lewis friend is another made up character that he kind of throws a name out. And you find out later that Clarice is taking that name and trying to decode it to see what it actually is and to try to figure out who is Lewis friend. Is it real? Is it a, is it another anagram? Is it something else? Or is it just totally made up? And I found that really, really interesting that she's trying to figure out what he's saying and he's lying to everybody else. And she's the only one that can read. Yeah. Well, the main FBI kind of just sort of takes it, I think relatively at face value. And they, um, I think they even think that maybe it's a slightly fake name, but it's a red herring that sort of throws them off. And I think they head to like Chicago to go get like this other guy or something like that under, under a similar name. Yeah. So this goes back to the, the question of being uh, transgender. So Hannibal says that there's like three hospitals in the country that you know, do, you know, gender reassignment surgery at this time. And he names the three of them. So they look into it. And then he says, has anybody been rejected from gender reassignment surgery? And then they find out that somebody from this, you know, I let's say it's John Hopkins or something like that. Or, or some hospital like in the Baltimore area was rejected. They find out that it's this guy that's in Chicago and it's somehow linked to this Lewis friend name that they say. And so they sent a team to look for him there. But in the meantime, she also goes and visits Hannibal now in this holding cell that is really, really creepy in this, I don't know, almost like a museum or a building. But he's in this giant room in this steel cage 
And this steel cage, I don't know if you would have even thought of this, but I thought of this. You've seen that movie, Suicide Squad? Yes. Remember how... Yeah, you're Har- right. Yeah, it is very similar to how they have um, Harley stashed Quinn. away. Yeah. Yeah. Harley Quinn is in I a- imagine they pulled that directly from this. <laughs> oh, for sure. It's literally... They stole that idea from this movie. And, and said, actually, okay. even, you know, and again, this might be skipping a little ahead here, but how he leaves the guard sort of strung up on the thing. She sort of has herself like in a likewise set of cloths, like doing like acrobatics and things, you know? So, I, yeah, now that you mentioned it, it's actually they probably yanked quite a lot of that visual for that. Oh, yeah, for sure. So she's now talking to Hannibal and trying to be like, listen, we're against the clock here. You know who this person is. Tell me who this person is. And she's like, you know, he says, what does this man do that you seek? And she's like, what do you mean? Like, he hunts, he kills. And she's like, no, you're wrong. He covets. And you're like, what the hell does that mean? He covets. But but then you start looking deeper and he kind of goes into it further that he covets these women. Like he's, there's something about these women that he is drawn to. And he, you know, it's really, really interesting because she's trying to figure this out. And now we have this whole sequence where she leaves. He hands her back the case file and says, all of your answers are in the case file. He's like, what are you talking about? And then she leaves. Now, fun get, fact. Yeah. As they're dragging her away, the guy that's dragging her away is horror director George Romero. Is it really? <laughs> it is. is. <laughs> that's interesting. Lincoln, you miss it. <laughs> Again. But so now we get this sequence where the guards are coming to bring him dinner. And you realize, okay, he's fulfilled his purpose for her by giving her all the information that she needs. So now he needs to mount his escape. He essentially waited for her to come to get all the information that she needed to have as, again, a way of helping her because in some weird way he cares for her, and now he can mount his escape. Well, again, we should put a little pin in because this is one of the most amazing scenes ever filmed, I think. And again, we'd be doing it a disservice not to mention the silence of the lambs, right? Because we kind of finally hit the final portion of their relationship, which he's he's talking to her about again, like why, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you here? And, And it comes out that she has this whole story that like she had lived on this ranch and she had to leave. And why is that? And you find out this story where, um, she spots early in the morning the ranch owner like slaughtering lambs, the spring lambs. And he's kind of getting to her like, oh, if only you can save this girl, you feel like you could stop hearing these lambs screaming your dreams. So this is like the end of the of the therapy session. This is they finally have their big breakthrough, this amazing character moment between the two of them. Oh, the, the, um, the back and forth of this scene is beautiful. Cause yeah, like, I mean, it's, it's just, uh, that's why I say we can't leave without talking about it because it's, it's just so stunning and so, so well done. And this is like, this is the scene where the two of them pick up their Oscars. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the whole movie is, is fabulous, but this is where that comes from. And it's just this um, incredible 
interplay between the two of them. You know what they do in this scene? I don't know if you've noticed it as much as I did, because the, the acting and the dialogue is so strong, but also, again, the cinematography is progressively moving in. And it kind of does like a good, the bad, and the ugly sort of thing, where it sort of starts really wide, and then it progressively moves closer until it's like these just only their faces are in frame and it's really, really tight and yeah. you just hear them talk and just seeing their eyes. And it's just, you're like on the edge of your seat too. You're like, Oh my God, I can't, but I just, even though no, it's for sure. just like really uncomfortable and yeah. So you, you find well, out it that- all culminates too. When he hands her back the folder, he like touches her finger and it's like yeah. the first contact yeah. that they've ever had, you know? And it's just like, it's like such like a creepy yet poignant moment. You know what I mean? So, just really well done. And we've, we've discussed a bunch of really top level movies already in this, in this podcast, but um, it's, it's just a masterclass in, oh, yeah. like in, in just storytelling and, and character um, driven moments. And it's just, it's really, really cool. Yeah, it, it really is. It's, it's one of those things where after they have that scene, part of me didn't care how the movie ended. You know, like for me, that felt like the climax for them and the movie could have stopped right there. And we just forget about Buffalo Bill because we have like we have this beautiful moment. But now we're essentially we're in the third act, but it almost sends the third act into overdrive now because we have this moment where she has this big reveal. We learn a lot about her in this moment. Well, because she's so strong the whole movie. I mean, like she has some moments where like you can see things are getting to her, but you finally like uncover that like underneath everything. Why is she in the FBI? Why is she going so hard to figure all this stuff out that there's like this scared little girl that like can't get these nightmares of these screaming lambs out of her head. And if she thinks if she can just save this person, save this one person, like she wanted to save the one lamb that it could finally fix her, you know? And it's like, it's just this great reveal because yeah. again, like she's, there's nothing about her. That's like this super heroic bombastic thing. And you really just finally realize, and he uncovers it that like, she's this vulnerable broken person underneath. You know what I mean? So it's, yeah. it's, it's just great. It's really, really so well done. It is. And so now he mounts his escape and, like I said earlier, we have this payoff of the the clip for the pen. He, I guess, what, he hide it in his mouth? Did he swallow it? Did he it had it in his mouth or under his tongue or in his throat or something, and he gets it out of his mouth into his hand. He palms it. Yeah. And then when they handcuff him to the bars, he starts he pi- picking. He picks, he picks the lock, and then he handcuffs the guards, and then he beats one to death with a, with his nightstick. And then he bites the other one in the face. Oh, yeah. man. And then he like hunts the guy down and he goes after him. And then you, we cut to, we don't see either of them physically get killed. We see him clubbing the one Again, cop. Yeah, first person perspective, yeah. just horrifying. <laughs> and, and then you hear him go after the other guy. And then you hear gunshots from the lobby where there's, like 75 SWAT team people. Yeah, now this is this is a question mark for me. And again, the, any movie, no matter how good, can certainly have its plot holes. This seems like one to me. 
if you've got this guy who's under lock and key, and we've seen every time they're transferring him, there's like 40 guys with guns trained on him. Why are you really going to have two guys all by themselves with guns on them? You know, right. like correctional officers pretty much never have guns on them because right. a prisoner could get a hold of them. Yeah. With guns on them, two guys go in to, to feed this guy with no other backup or anything else and up on the random fifth floor of this building while everybody else is just, just hanging in the lobby. <laughs> yeah. There's no surveillance cameras in this room watching what's going on. Nothing. This is a, this is one of those plot holes that unfortunately yeah. had to pop up, but it's so forgivable. <laughs> yeah. It's it's forgivable, but it was like one of those things. Like, there's no other cops on any other floors. There's two guards in this in the fifth floor and seventy five SWAT team on the first floor. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And so we start seeing the elevator is moving, and this must have been one heck of a you know location scouting because this particular elevator thing is such a cool looking arm because the arm of it looks like a knife right and you see it starting to go from the fifth floor to the third floor and everyone's like the thing is moving what's going on and so they send everybody up (laughs) like the whole SWAT team goes up they investigate the room they see this one guy spread out like an angel with the cloths and everything, and he's strung up and he's been somewhat gutted and disemboweled yeah. a little bit. It's 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 a little gross, but like it's not you don't see it super close. You kind of see it in this wide shot, yeah, lit from behind. It's really interesting. Yeah, by the way, I don't know where um Hannibal found the time to do a bunch of st- stage lighting. Yeah. There was like a light that was um, like what I would think of as a stereotypical like searchlight at a jail, like where it's yeah. like a big spotlight moving back and forth, like that in that scene. And I'm like, how did he have the time to do all this this uh, staging? But again, forgivable for how creepy a a look it gives. Yeah, it, it's creepy. But then you find the other guard is lying on the ground, and he's sort of like half breathing, and you see that his face is all you know marred yeah. up, and and that's when I realized, I'm like, I remember this. I remember what happens next. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I forgot about all this. I forgot about all this. Because they think he's loose in the building and they're trying to hunt him down and find him. And they rush this other guard on an EMT stretcher into the elevator. And there's like 10 cops around him. And they're calling over the radio. They're like, we think he's on the third floor. We think he's here. We think he's there. And you start seeing drips coming from the ceiling. And because they had heard the gunshots, they thought maybe he was wounded. And they're like, he's right above us on the elevator. And there's this blood patch on like the access panel. They rush the guard out of the building into the ambulance. They sent other SWAT team above. They're looking down. One of the SWAT team guys is very recognizable, but I forget his name, who he was. Mm. But, the, but the other guy, they like, okay, shoot his leg and wound him. And they shoot the leg and the body doesn't move. So they assume maybe he's dead. What's going on? Like there's not even a flinch, an ouch, nothing. So then they open the hatch and the body drops out and you realize, oh my God. But they don't say it to you immediately. They cut. Well, like, it's, it's cutting. Yeah, it's cutting back and forth between this guy who's in the ambulance and like the young 
officer or whoever like trying to be like you're gonna be okay it's all right you know like yeah and, yeah and then like as yeah. as the guy is dangling down from the ceiling he pulls off his like meat mask <laughs> oh, <it's> so <laughs> gross and you're like oh my god the ambulance people are about to die <laughs> yeah. and then they say and you don't see it you don't see them get killed all you hear is they say oh yeah the ambulance was found a couple miles away both of the officers are dead and you know like he a, got away like a bystander or something so he must have, like stolen somebody's car or something. yeah he, he killed the random uh, passerby and stole his car and he's gone now so now we're like okay great he's gone he's out of there and you would assume the movie would go after him but no they don't go after him because they have to wrap up the buffalo bill storyline and so again we go back to this element of him coveting so now we we bring in this you know the character of her friend who helps her figure out what he covets and hannibal says something about like what do we covet things that are you know close to us or things that are you know we're close to or so on and so forth and they start figuring out that you know where was the first girl killed or where was she found Specifically because her body, unlike all the others, was like weighed down. Yeah. And that was like an interesting indicator for them. It took them longer to find her because of it. But like they realized that she was the first one. Yeah. Which I guess like indicates that there was some more care or some more something that that was put into that one, obviously. And, you know, so then she starts going and investigating this town where he grows up. But. We keep now getting more and more scenes with Buffalo Bill and seeing him in his full-blown, you know, lair, essentially, and how crazy he is. And he starts, you know, putting makeup on and listening to, like, loud blasting music. And he puts one of the girl's hair on his head and he starts dancing around in front of the camera or, or what you're to assume is a mirror, essentially. And... My first thought was when he had the 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 hair on his head, he kind of looked like David Lee Roth from Van Halen. <laughs> like this looks really weird. It's so weird. I guess and, I can see that. Yeah. I, I mean, interesting thing to know about. I mean, that's another really iconic scene, and it's another one that I was slightly misremembering because uh, first I should say it's not in the script. That is a scene that they decided to tack on like day and date like that they did. And like, really? yeah, it was pretty much improv. The actor that was playing him, who I'm, I'm forgetting his name, unfortunately off the top of my head was like super uncomfortable about doing it, but like committed to doing it and went ahead with it. And it's like the movie would not be the same without that. You know what no, I mean? I agree. And um, it really does do something to, show more of the psyche of that character, which again, like we said in the previous podcast, I feel like at least in the movie, Buffalo Bill is like a side act to um, Hannibal. He's like a B plot almost. And it's a scene like this that does bring him back much more into focus for how the movie has to come in and land on dealing with him. Um, So it's, it's really interesting. What I did misremember slightly about this scene, or at least the scenes with him to follow is I thought they showed more of him wearing or trying to get into his his woman suit, essentially, 
And really, you never see that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Only like, the hair. Something that does pop up, which that's freaky enough on its own that he's got somebody's scalp on him. But um, I don't know. Just it, it, interesting because I had kind of misremembered that. I thought that there was a little bit more gruesomeness to to that moment than there truly was. Yeah. So, yeah. And the actor's name is Ted Levine. Who, Thank you. Yes. Yes. Uh, as I mentioned in the previous episode was like the chief on the show monk. Yeah. <laughs> so weird. But um so yeah, so we get a little bit more of a taste of this this character's psyche because you know, we've learned enough about Hannibal Lecter, he's now missing, but Clarice needs to again quiet the screaming lambs by saving this girl and closing the book essentially on this this story. And so she goes to Ohio and where the first girl was killed and he's like looking at her house and so on and so forth. And she finds in her jewelry box, a hidden back compartment with Polaroids of her posing. And you figure out the person who she's photographing or or who's taking the pictures is probably him. Yeah. They sort of, um, I can't remember if it was ever directly stated or not, but there's sort of this insinuation that basically they were together for a time. Yeah. And then at a point he turns on her and makes her his first victim. Kill. Yeah. Now, whether he was with her because he saw this as the means to an end is unclear. I feel like, again, it's probably something that's more clear in the book. I was a little confused to be honest with you by this um, section of the movie, you know, like she meets with her father um, and we see that, she was into sewing. So you can kind of take away that he must've learned some of that from her or something like that. Again, you have to kind of draw some conclusions here because in a way it's good when movies don't bang you over the head with exposition, but this portion of this, I found myself being a little confused about what the entire connection was that Clarice was roughly essentially putting together right yeah it's 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 a little bit fuzzy and you're sort of like okay so she's a seamstress i guess she may have taught him how to sew and then we open a closet and we see like diamond shapes cut out of like or or, or taped over a dress and she then has this realization he's making a skin suit and it's i've seen the movie enough that i know what what it was going to be anyway but if you didn't know, essentially, you might have been a little bit like, how did she figure this out? Because it, they don't give you enough clues to reveal well, it's that. a little on the nose in a way, but the pattern that's randomly left on this dress in this closet is the same diamond. diamond shapes that were cut out of the woman that she had seen in the morgue. Yeah. So I think that's kind of how she pieces it together. Um, or at least that like, or starts to come together, at least on it the next question I have is then why or how she ends up at the house. She does except to say that I think the woman who was supposed to be living at the house was a seamstress or a tailor or something like that. I don't know. That's where, again, where I think I got a little confused. So she makes a phone call from this victim's house to call her boss Crawford, who's on a plane heading to Chicago. And I'm like, I was like, 
how did she get routed to him so quickly on this plane? I, I just kind of <laughs> suspended this loop. I'm like, cell phones don't exist, but okay. Yeah, so either kinda, we're way wrong or phone technology on planes was much more widely available in the night yeah. than you and I think. <laughs> and, you know, she's telling him, like, I think he's here. I think this is where he is. And like, no, we've got a lead. We found the guy. He's in Chicago. We're going to Chicago. 40 minutes, yeah. And she's like, oh, I could be there in four hours. And they're like, no, stay here. Find out more information. And they're essentially sidelining her when this has been her journey the whole time. And they're saying, no, we got this. You stay there. And we're going to handle this. You know, let the men do the do the work now. And you're going to stay here, even though you've given us everything thus far. And, and she's kind of like, okay, bummer, but okay, I guess so. And yeah, so now we find out that I guess she's going to see some seamstress lady's house in this town. And she gets there and she meets this man. And she doesn't automatically figure out it's him, but... Well, and we should point out too, because again, this is another filmmaking thing that's so worth pointing out. There is a awesome series of edits in this section. It's, it's, it's this beautiful simultaneous action, which I had written down in the notes. Go ahead. I'll let you talk. Oh, sure. No, I mean, I was just going to say, like, you know, they they tee it up that she has missed the mark, that these people are about to pick him up. And so it's cutting from the police descending on this little house and shots of him inside toiling away on his machine, you know, sewing the skin and things like that. And it's just very intense cuts back and forth, back and forth. And you're like, oh, my God, oh, my God, it's going to happen. And they kind of like press this doorbell. And then the next thing you know, he's coming up to answer the door, but it's Clarice at the door, not the cops. And they're in the wrong spot, and she's in the right spot, unknowingly so. I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. It's, it was just such like a masterpiece in editing that it was just well worth stopping to point out. Yeah, no, it really is. And let me tell you, the doorbell that he has is so creepy because it like shoots off like electrical sparks or whatever. <laughs> it's really freaky. You're like, oh my god. and the house that the SWAT team is at, you would think it looks a lot like it could be his place of residence, if you will. And it's also a little creepy. And then, you know, we open the door and we see that it's Clarice that finds him and not the SWAT team in Chicago. And so she's kind of coming in and she's asking him a few series of questions. And then she sees... I think she sees like spools of thread or whatever. Yeah, it's it's super duper on the nose. She not only she's like literally got like a picture of like a butterfly next to her. And then she looks down and a death's head moth lands on the thread. Yeah. It's like, bam, in your face. you know. <laughs> like, yeah. And like he, you know, he's sort of struggling to answer her questions. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm her son. And she's asking him like, oh, so you got this place after she died or left or whatever and he's like oh yeah like I, I could give you her son's information i bought it from them and he's like going through cards and all this yeah so i mean yeah so so here's the problem that i had right so there's a shot from the inside of the kitchen and his gun is right there on the stove and as he's backing up he runs away into his lair as opposed to grabbing his gun right there and pointing it at her when she wouldn't know that the gun is there. And now she has this hunt for him. And I'm like, why wouldn't he just turn and grab the gun and just point it at it and shot it? My right best guess 
is a just because the movie might be more boring that way, but B noise um, because he knows that he has the element of surprise over her down in his lair, for lack of a better word, because obviously he ends up, you know, there's like this like initial scene that we see he's got the night vision and then it turns out that's where it comes back around is that he flicks all the power off and he's sort of stalking her. Yeah. Um. I, I mean, I I think it's really an interesting choice, um, to go that route. Um, I mean, we're probably getting a little bit of, <laughs> ahead of, of of maybe what you wanted to say here. You know, uh, one thing I would say is that unbelievable choice in real estate that this guy made for this like oh. little like shanty house that has this like underground that cave lair with like. Uh, a pit in it and like all this stuff. I was like, man, he must have been like really looking around for like the perfect real estate. For yeah. This house, <laughs> like the, the, the size of the house that she goes to is very small, but this cavern essentially underneath it. Yeah. The basement is like a labyrinth and oh like God. they have this really cool shot that takes place possibly, I think leading up to the scene where he's dancing where it's like this like one camera movement just going like room to room to room while it's got like goodbye horses playing. And it's like, it's cool because it sets you up later for like this labyrinthine sort of chase that they end up having. But man, what a underground to this little house. I don't know what that old seamstress lady was doing, if she was a rum runner or what, but (laughs) she had quite a a serious basement going on in that place. And I feel like, again, this was probably something that was established better in the book that they could, they could have the time to dive into this this labyrinth essentially yeah, yeah it is but you know but what's cool about this movie is when she goes down there it doesn't turn into a horror movie where like you don't look behind you and then the guy comes like she is moving like an fbi agent would move She's clearing rooms and shutting doors. She's checking a room and, and yeah. Well, she got scolded for it earlier in the movie. You know, like she's yeah. doing one of these training sequences, and the guy like comes up to her and he's like, "Bam, you're dead. You didn't check your corners." So now you know she's hopefully learned her lesson. Yeah, <laughs> I was yelling at the screen. I'm like, "Check your corners, Clarice." <laughs> and that's the thing. Again, this movie does a lot of things that pays itself off later on in the film, and that's one of those elements where she had this moment where she made a mistake. And now she's not going to make the same mistake in real life. And she's clearing rooms and checking things out. And she sees the girl and the girl, she's like, I'm going to get you out of here. And the girl is just screaming obscenities at her. Yeah. <laughs> like, like we got to get the bad guy first. We can't get you out of here before we get the bad guy. Yeah. Like, you know, and you know, like you said, she gets to a point where she can't find him and then he kills the lights. And now it flips to, his first person perspective through the night vision goggles. And it is, you could see how uncomfortable. I almost wonder if they really did shut the lights out on her because. No. And I'll tell you why I know. No, because um, there is a movie mistake in this scene, which is that he's holding a gun out at her and it's casting a shadow on her. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and, and so it's like, it's, it's, it's lit from behind. And the other thing that I would say, and again, I'm not like an expert on night vision goggles, so maybe somebody will correct me on this, but I'm pretty sure night vision goggles um, light up partially. Um, so like she would probably see like a little, like, you know, if you've ever looked at like a baby monitor, it's using kind of the same sort of 
um, lights from that. I forget which spectrum of light it's in infrared, I think. Yeah. Um, but there's like, you can kind of see that a little bit. So I don't 100% buy that. She would not be able to see or hear him moving behind her at all during this scene. That said, it's still a super cool scene and super creepy. And if you take it at filmmaking value that, you know, I, I wish they had almost shot it through a actual night vision scope rather than basically regular and then like tinting it a green color and like, you know, whatever. But like she plays it well that she can't make out where what's following because her. There's moments where he gets so close to her that he's almost like touching her hair. Yeah, he's like toying with her. He's like he's like going to like touch her and things like that. Yeah, it's yeah. And, you know. I don't know why or how she realizes to to shoot. I, I kind of missed that moment. I don't know why, but like he cocks the gun. Oh, right. He cocks the gun. Just, yeah. And it's again, another one of these like cinema sins, dopey movie tropes that like if you're going to kill somebody, like maybe get the gun ready in the first place. Right. You know, everybody like, always waits to cock the gun like right before they shoot it. But it had five he, minutes to cock the gun. Cocks it, and then like her hearing that noise just like unloads at him, basically. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, this is probably like my least favorite moment of the way they shot this is when she fires the gun, it's very erratic, which you would assume would be erratic, but like the cuts feel a little weird. And, and I forgot that she kills him in the darkness because from my knowledge of night vision goggles, which is only movie based, if you will, or even some video games. Once some sort of natural light comes in, you are blinded if you're wearing night vision goggles. And I thought, like, she shoots the glass, he gets blinded, then she shoots him. But no, she really already unloaded on him first and just happens to have a one ricochet that goes off and and breaks the glass. And you see him lying there. Which, by the way, if there's any glass, even if it's, like, blacked out with paint, I'm pretty sure enough light is still coming through it that you could make out an outline. It wouldn't be like pitch, pitch black in that yeah. room. So again, we're nitpicking now, but it's, you know, yeah. we have, we have to give it a, a few digs here and there, yeah. <laughs> but you know, we essentially, we see him take his last breath on the, on the ground. And then, you know, we cut to after the fact and they've saved the girl. We don't ever see the girl again, but, you know, everybody's giving her her commendation. Yeah, they, they, they see her coming out of the house. She's like the dog. She was previously trying to hold hostage and like hurt. She's now like clinging to as they bring her out of the house. Like I, she has a new pet, I guess. <laughs> I totally missed that. Like I didn't see her exiting the house. I just saw the foreground. Cause I guess she's set much further in the back. No, no, it's, you just missed it. No, it's, it's, it's like, she's pretty front and center of, of like carrying the dog out of the house. They're kind of got like a, like a blanket wrapped around her and, and things like that. Yeah. This is what happens when you watch it on a small device. If you don't yeah. watch it on a big, <laughs> big screen, you miss stuff. But so, you know, we've, we've saved the girl. We've, we've reached the climax of the story. We've got the bad guy. Um, what I thought was interesting about this movie was you know, a lot of times in film or television, People can get from one place to the next in a matter of seconds, right? Yeah, we've talked about movie magic teleportation. <laughs> right. Like, you know, New York City is a big example of that. Like whenever they film in New York City, oh, I can get from Brooklyn to Harlem in like four minutes. Like that is impossible. But this movie, they they 
don't do that. They kind of showcase that it does take time and every and everything is on a clock and finding the evidence, finding the girl, figuring out where he is. Everything has a window of time and there it's burning up as as they yeah. go. I mean, it's funny to compare to like sleeping with the enemy where we so tore into the sense of time and being weird, you know, I'm not going to say that this is flawless. You know, they skip over a lot of times where there's travel in between locations, but at a minimum, it's regional. We're really only talking about basically like Baltimore to Chicago to Ohio sort of area. So it's believable that these people could be getting to these places within hours and and certainly within like this supposed three day window that they're going to have to save, you know, this girl in. Um, But no, I agree. I guess at least sign of a good film is that it didn't draw your attention to it in a way where we were questioning it. At least right. it feels fine. You know what I mean? <laughs> so we get to the graduation and she gets her commendation for catching Buffalo Bill. And my first thought Although was... I was like, no standing O. I think you should get like a big... Yes. Uh, that crowd should have lost its damn mind for her single-handedly busting that open. Right. Like, she did everything for that thing. She was... <laughs> No partner, no nothing, just her and a serial killer solving the mystery of another serial killer. But my first thought was, man, what an awesome FBI cake. (laughs) This giant circular cake with the FBI logo perfectly designed. I'm like, this this looks really good. And I couldn't tell. I'm like, is that a real thing they do at FBI graduations, or is that just some movie magic? I was fascinated. Well, not this year. <laughs> yeah, no, I guess not. Yeah, I guess that's not. But it's uh, it's very interesting. And then we have one last little scene with her and Crawford, kind of congratulating her on you know graduating and doing the job. He doesn't offer her a job on his team though, which is essentially what she wanted at the beginning of the movie is to be on his team. And they have this really awkward handshake that kind of holds for a very long time. And we just get a shot of their two hands holding together. And it's really awkward. I don't know why I don't get the, I mean, he might be a little burned that he essentially sent her to just be like a nothing thing. And then that she ended up doing, you know, so he might be a little, little green. I guess so. I guess that's good. You know, and it was one of those things where I thought he'd get killed next. Like that would be Hannibal's next kill. Like he finds him, he catches him, he kills him. Cause he references Crawford a few times in the movie saying that he knows him. And well, this is my question, Mark. Is it him that tells her that there's a phone call waiting? I can't remember uh, if it's him or somebody else. Cause if it's him, presumably well, that means that, no, somebody else okay, says, so never mind. <laughs> says to her, there's a call for you. And then yeah. as he leaves, he says, oh, don't forget to grab your call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she goes to the phone, picks it up. And of course, who's on the other end but Hannibal Lecter? And, you know, he kind of congratulates her. And in in his own weird way gives his sort of like loving goodbye to her and reassures her that he's not going to come after her and kill her. Yeah. But he, yeah, he says, sort of says, um, I won't be making a call on you. I expect the same treatment back. And she's sort of like, you know, I can't do that. Right. And 
you know, so she says that he, he says that he's going to have an old friend for dinner. Yes. And, and then you see the warden in this, you know, I guess it's, let's call it, I don't know. Somewhere vaguely Caribbean, it looks like. I, I would say so. Either like, you know, the Keys or like Bahamas or somewhere in, in you know, somewhere the Caribbean. palm trees, yeah. yeah. And so he's got a wig on. He's this weird, creepy fedora hat on. <laughs> and he just follows them. And as I said earlier, the credits roll. Well, and he, that guy's there because he's clearly like gone into hiding or something. Like he looks really freaked out. He looks like he's like, you know, like having these people trying to escort him somewhere. And like, yeah, <laughs> to get away from Hannibal. But he yes. said he goes exactly where Hannibal is. And, you know, we we assume that, you know, Lecter's going to go after him, hunt him down, kill him and beat him, essentially. And that's but in the best possible way. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it's not like he's like chasing after him or something with a knife. He's got this great swagger that's just like right? I he's just strolling down the street. Like I got time, I'll just follow this guy. He's got this really interesting walk to him and this weird kind of like swagger or like you know joyful disposition on going after this guy in his slow, methodical way, and it's very interesting. And then the credits start rolling, and it just he disappears into the crowd and you just you're just held on this lockdown shot of this street in somewhere Caribbean as all the credits roll through to the complete end and you never cut away from this shot to a fade to black end of the movie. The movie just ends there. Yeah. Like, wow, that was really, really something. Like I've never seen that in a movie that it goes all the way through the entire length of the credits with still action happening at the same time. But that was really interesting. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, it, it started strong. It ended strong. We started this podcast mentioning the bookmarked ends and we're finishing and doing it again. It, it, just great movie. Everything about it. I can't say enough good things. It really holds up. Um, in some ways it's better than I remembered. Um, it really does the psychological horror thriller thing extremely well. It is 180 degrees, the opposite way of sleepless uh, yeah. sleeping with the enemy. As far as, you know, this sort of a, a creepy stalkerish situation goes, um, they really nailed it. Um, and I'm not surprised at all why it won the many awards that it did. I mean, they just, they just did a really good job with it. Yeah, no, I agree. It, it was a lot of fun, and it's it's fun, it's terrifying, it's exciting, it's a really cool character study. If you haven't seen it, watch it. If you have seen it, but it's been a while, rewatch it and just take the ride again. But don't do it before you go to bed. <laughs> That's my <laughs> advice. Um, but yeah, no, I really enjoyed this movie. I was excited about it from the get go. I was excited to do the notes on it and look at it from a different perspective than I have in the past. Because this is the one you swapped the notes to, right? Yeah, I, I yes, look at that. Yeah, you really did. Uh... I, I, I traded this to get out of a hook. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, um, but now I'm questioning if it's that you tried to get out of hook or you tried to get into this, because uh, this is the most excited I've seen you about. I would say it's probably <laughs> a, a, a 50-50 split, because I did not want to do hook and I did want to do this. So I'd say it's an even split. Fair enough. 
So we've got a couple of exciting things coming up. So next month we have Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze. And I'm I'm excited for this. And Pete will be handling the notes for that next month, which is going to be really, really fun. And I can listen to his mind at work. I'm curious to see how this is going to go because I feel like I need to watch Ninja Turtles 1 before I watch Ninja Turtles 2. And it's all like on HBO Max right now. And so, I sat the other day with Zoe. I'm like, oh, I'll show you something. And I like put it on and she like was watching it for like five minutes and then like took off in the other room and started doing something else. So I'm like, I might be solo watching yeah. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 1 and 2. <laughs> so I fortunately had the benefit of watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 1 for my other podcast, Wizards, but actually through our Patreon which is this uh, 90s super cinema series that we do. Try saying that five times fast. And we, so I have that pretty fresh in my mind. And speaking of that, Pete and I are going to be doing sort of a crossover event for The Rocketeer that is going to premiere first on the Wizards Patreon, but then it will also drop on our podcast as a bonus special episode for all of you guys as well. So you can hear the full glory of our excitement of the Rocketeer <laughs> crossover event, which is going to be really, really fun. Yeah, I'm excited for that. I, I mean, and I've probably mentioned this even on the podcast before, but you and I bonded very early on in our friendship over the shared love of the Rocketeer. So <laughs> yeah, and I know we've got a few listeners that I are among my friends. I always mentioned that I grew up watching movies with, and this was another one of our big favorites, so I'm sure they'll be excited to hear that, too. And I've got a special surprise to show you when we do Ooh. the Rocketeer. It'll be really Ooh, I'm fun. in for it. <laughs> yeah. So, this was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed talking about this movie and going back 30 years and looking at it in a different perspective and through a new lens, if you will, and I'm really excited to see what people think of it, so please, don't forget to check us out on our social media. You can check us out on Twitter at boxoffice 30 on Facebook at Box Office 30, on Instagram, Box Office 30, T H I R T Y. And you can go to our T Public store and check out some sweet merch. I got to still show Pete my awesome long <laughs> sleeve t shirt, which I'll be rocking soon. And I'll take a picture of it. We'll put it on our social media. And you can also go to our website, which is boxoffice30.com. But Pete, want to take us out of this? Oh, God. I have no unique uh, exit for us here this week, uh, except to maybe say goodbye, Clarice. (laughs) Thanks, friends. Good night, everybody. (laughs) Or goodbye, whatever. (laughs) Whatever you listen to this. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.